Good morning and happy new year. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 5, we're going to continue our series on the return of hope, but I'm going to bring by, if if you're ready to go there with me, we're going to go back and visit one final scene from 2020, from the Christmas season uh, together. I heard about a a news story in, in Southern California. There was a man who was dressed as Santa Claus who took to a paraglider so that he could deliver candy canes to children who were playing in in the park and throughout the community where he lived. He wanted to bring just a little bit of extra hope uh, to the kids who had gone through so much that year. But he ended up gliding right into the neighborhood power lines and getting stuck there. And so those children had to watch Santa Claus desperately hang upside down for an hour while waiting to be rescued and 200 customers lost power in in the process, right? Uh, Santa has never been more disappointing, except maybe when Buddy the Elf discovered that he smelled like beef and cheese. But is is that how God is toward us as we enter 2021? Well intended, but pretty sloppy on the execution, not able to follow through on the promise. As we precariously glide into this year, what can we expect? The hope feels like a risky business, doesn't it? Right? Do we dare anticipate anything good to come our way? Well, Romans 5, we've seen this. It describes an intentional process that God has us in. Everything that we walk through, everything that we experience, it's not just random events. You know, we don't just have a target on our back, you know, for for misery. God has us in something. And a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Keith described it with that illustration of caramelization. You know, God turns up the heat and, and these chemicals get released and this sweet flavor comes out on the other side of that. And we need to know that's happening while we're in it. But we also need to have a deeper awareness while we're cooking on the stovetop. We need to know that we won't be left to burn. And Paul addresses this question here. How can you enter the year with shameless hope? And his answer is that because you, you, you can enter it with the confidence that you are loved. You are loved. Whatever you will walk through. Whatever people will disappoint you. Whatever failures await you, whatever is going to hurt you this year, you can know you are loved. Let's read this together, starting back in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And in our text, verse 5, and hope 
does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we once again acknowledge your presence. And we ask you to come to do what you are described as doing in this passage. Lord, would would you preach this message on the inside of us? We're so grateful we, we sang that you're working even when we don't feel it. But Holy Spirit, would you help us to feel it right now? Would we know you are at work in a way that imparts hope? For this year, for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Thomas Aquinas described the practice of hope as a stretching of the appetite toward good. Right? We, we reach, we, we take our, our longings and our desires and we extend them towards something we believe is good. Towards something we believe will give us a good future. But what that means is that hope takes work. It requires effort. It's not just some passive wishing. It's not just closing your eyes and blowing out the candles. It's not just looking up on a star, right? Biblical hope, you know, we often just live by wishful thinking if we were honest. We wouldn't describe it that way, but we kind of just want things to be different and we expect that they will be just because we want them to be. And our culture trains us to have this perspective all the time. You get to select your own unique playlist. You get to subscribe to the content that you want to engage. You get to have instantly streaming. Whatever it is you want to watch, you get to design the life, at least the digital life, around you. And we expect the analog life to respond in the same way, right? We bring that approach to the people around us, assuming that they will cooperate with us. We think life will change even when we extend very little effort to engage the work and we just become disappointed with the outcome. And as a result, we are easily vulnerable to disillusionment and despair. That's just been observable in the Christian world over the past several years. We are thrown off guard By the difficulty that we confront. We have unrealistic expectations. For what relationships. And what different settings will demand of us. And so we throw in the towel early. But biblical hope is not unrealistic. It instructs us how to frame our expectations. And how to take account of all of reality. You know, as the world has gotten crazier, uh, the more popular different post-apocalyptic stories have become. And Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, describes a a world like that. It's it's a dark place. There's a father and a son who are are living in the fallout of something. The, The book never really takes the time to describe. Just something has gone wrong. And now all the world looks like this setting here. You know, it is gray and it is grim. And they're on a journey. They're traveling down a road together, a road that that leads to the coast. And they believe that when they show up there in one way or another, there's going to be help. And so they've got to get to the coast. They've got to get to the sea. 
But so far, the people they've encountered have only attempted to harm them. They have to reckon with the way things actually are in the world. They are not safe. But they press on. And the father tells his son that there's something that sets them apart in the darkness. They're carrying the fire. There's something burning inside of their chest that keeps them going. The road is a story of hope. But it's also a story about love. Right, dads, be prepared if you read the book. It'll undo you. It's, it's, it's the love of a father for his son. And the boy continues down the road knowing he is loved by his father. His father who is willing to die a little bit every day to get him to safety. And, and Paul describes something like that here. Right, there, there is a hope that burns in your chest and it comes from the love of the father that has been shed abroad in your heart. It keeps you moving down the road. And we're going to take each of these phrases in turn. So first, hope does not put us to shame. Now, why does Paul say that? Why does he throw in that idea right here? He knows we need this kind of encouragement. Why is that? Well, well, because we're vulnerable to shame. We have the capacity to be left in this condition. And by the way, the, the New Testament is so helpful. It's not triumphalistic in the way that some presentations of Christianity can, can be sometimes. You know, it's, a, it's not just a story of wins after wins and one triumph after another and learn how to you know, say no to the haters and shake off all your troubles, right? It, it's realistic to our doubts, to our struggles, to the kinds of things that we experience. God speaks to us right where we are. But you have to read this verse carefully. Because Paul doesn't say that hope generically won't ever put you to shame. Right? This isn't just some hope print that you can purchase at Hobby Lobby and bring home and, and hang up on your, on your wall next to your live, laugh, love poster. Right? He's not talking about that here. It's a specific kind of hope. In fact, in, in the Greek text, he uses the definite article here. It's, it's the hope that I've been describing here. He's talking about one that will never fail us. But there are things we often hope in that can put us to shame. Be forewarned, right? And it's not as if we hope in them by believing they're no big deal. These are things of significance. These are things that we are invested in, that take from us our emotions and our commitments and our time. Things like your marriage, your career, your children, your health, your physical abilities, your perceived track record of always winning at life. That's how you've always been known. And we invest our hope in these things, but then testing comes and it starts to take some of them away. Or it changes the significance that they're able to bring to us. And some of the realities that we were banking on get threatened. Trials reveal our trust. 
they, they expose what we have been looking to in order to secure a good future. And listen, every hope in a false love has the potential to shame you. This is masterfully illustrated in, in the novel Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine by Gail Honeyman. Eleanor is a 30-year-old uh, social misfit, tends to never be included in what's going on in the office. She kind of just hangs by herself. But, but she happens to attend the concert of some moderately famous musician one day. And she becomes convinced that she has met the love of her life. And she goes you know, over a makeover in the process. She thinks this dude is going to be the one to fix what's broken inside of her, to rewrite her past, to set her on the on a new course and so she's planning and preparing you know what kind of hairstyle might he like might like you know what kind of wardrobe she's somebody that's never given any attention to how she dresses before but suddenly she goes undergoes this transformation and, and plans for you know what's it going to be like to to live in the public eye you know have the paparazzi always after me because i'm going to be the girlfriend of some celebrity and then she goes to another one of his concerts and she realizes she is a face in the crowd. He takes no notice of her. And here she is, 30 years old, with this girlish crush on a guy who right now is just checking out his hair and his cell phone while a bandmate is doing a guitar solo. And everything comes crashing down. She realizes the fantasy that it was. And it feels like everything's come to an end. And she swallows a bunch of pills and vodka in a half-hearted attempt to take her own life. But she's rescued by her friend Raymond, who's another awkward misfit. And he intervenes and he takes care of her and he gets her the help that she needs. And all along, although she didn't give him much notice, he loved her. But do you know that kind of shame? Your story probably doesn't look like Eleanor's. But maybe there was something last year that you were invested in. You thought it was going to bring you to a good chapter and it is gone. You thought you had a future with the company, but you were let go. It looked like you were the desired candidate for the job position, but they decided to move in a different direction. Maybe you're a high school student, you were, you were cut from the sports team last year. Maybe you're a college student that you didn't quite have the ability to get the scholarship that was needed in order for you to go to that university that you always wanted to. It seemed like that person really cared about you, but they just wanted what they could get from you before moving on to someone else. These hopes will let you down left and right. The stability and the security that they promise is a total sham. But there's that word shame that Paul uses here. The term he, he uses, it describes not just the experience of being disappointed, but being dishonored. It's that feeling when you don't want to show your face. You know what I mean by this? When you feel that everybody sees 
Everybody sees you exactly for who you are. Where does that come from? Well, it's because the expectation and the longing that you brought to these things, it seems to make a statement not just about them, but about you. How could you? Right? How could you be so foolish? How could you trust that person? How could you think that it would actually work out? How could you be so naive as to believe that anybody would want to look after you? That's the sense of shame. Maybe shame is a word you've carried for decades. You know, the shame of a father who was never involved. The shame of abuse at the hands of the very people who were supposed to protect you, supposed to give you a home that was safe. The shame of never arriving, of a life that long ago left you behind, and you feel as unviewable as the way forward before you seems to be. Then there's the shame you've brought upon yourself. What last year are you ashamed of? You, you feel like you have failed that, that test of provenness that Romans 5 describes, that you walk through difficulty and, and at some point on the other side of that is change and transformation and new character and that tasty caramelization stuff. Maybe to you, it just seems like the Brussels sprouts are just as bitter as ever. It doesn't seem like anything good has come, not just from my circumstances, but from me. And it's just the same. And you can project into this year and you just see relapse and stuck patterns and the same failures set before you. And you can already feel the encroaching shame that it'll bring. We walk through these seasons. Questions and fears arise in our soul. Questions about whether we're going to be put to shame. Am I real? Like, am, am I the real deal? Is my faith real? Is God real? In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the pilgrim who's named Christian and his friend Hopeful, they're, they're on their own road of endurance, but they end up wandering off of the path in a way that seems like would offer an easier route, but they're captured by this giant named despair. It's an allegory. So everybody's got names. It's got their like little name tags sticking out of their clothes with telling you what they represent. This giant despair grabs them and sticks them in, in this doubting castle, locks them up in a dungeon. And night after night, they are there and the, and the giant tells them things, trying to get them to just give up. You know, why don't you just end it all right now? Put yourself out of your misery because there's no going on from here. But then at, at some point on a Saturday evening, Christian feels in his, his shirt pocket and he realizes he, he had a key there called promise. 
And he takes it out and he puts it in the lock and he opens up the cell. And he walks freely. All along, there was a promise kept close to his heart. Promises like Psalm 25 verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. But why not? Right? How do we know that's true? You know, how do we know that's not just optimistic, you know, just wishful thinking. God might turn on us. The whole thing might prove to be fake in the end. Well, the reason why we can know that is because we've experienced something. That's what he says next. Because... God's love has been poured into our hearts. I think about this problem. How, how do you get through that whole process of testing and fire and provenness if you don't have hope? Right? It, does hope only come at the end? Like if you, if you stuck it out, then arriving right on time is hope. It looks like that's the case. Uh, you just that first reading of his, of his passage. But how would we ever survive any of this if we didn't know that God is for us? Right? How are you going to make it through? And Paul says, no, hope isn't just something you have to wait for to arrive. There is a deepened hope that's coming. Stick it out. And when it arrives, it will be a ballast for you in the waters that are ahead. But there's this immediate knowing that you can experience as well. That, that's what the, the word because is doing in the text. Words mean something. It's functioning a certain way. He says, you know you won't be put to shame. Why not? Because God's love has been poured into your heart. The philosophers raise this question, when are you justified in believing that something is true? When's it reasonable for you to believe something? And, 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 and some people answer that by, by saying it's only reasonable for you to believe a certain claim if there are really strong arguments and evidence that you can describe that are in support of it. And so you better make your case. Typically that's like scientific evidence. You know, show me the, the proof of that. The problem is just ask them what their evidence for that claim is. You got any evidence for that statement, that whole point of view? But others point out that we wouldn't be able to say we know much of anything if that were the standard. For example, how do you know that you are sitting in this room listening to, to me speak right now? Or watching online on, on your device? What, what, what's the syllogism that you've worked out in your head to figure that out? You, you know that because of the experience. It's just immediately presented to you. You don't have to do any math. You just open your ears and your eyes. It's called a properly basic belief. The, the experience itself is all the reason that you need to know that it's true. And Paul describes an experience here. John Piper says, God's love poured into your heart is not the same as God's love proven to your mind. God's love poured into your heart is a real heart experience of being loved by God. God's love proven to your mind is the conclusion of an argument. It's helpful to have that. But with or without the sweetness of feeling loved by God in the heart. 
I want you to know this sweetness. I want you to enjoy this gift. The outpouring of the love of God in your hearts. Let's talk about this gift. That, that word outpouring, it, it's, it's conveying this, this abundant dis, diffusion, this, this extravagance and overflowing. It's a, a felt reality of a heart that's filled with, with a whole ocean of love. It's not just some facts in your head or something you read about once. It's something that is encountered. It's something that brings an impact to you. It's the power. It's the fire and the sweetness of it. It's not like reading a recipe, which is helpful to read accurately. But it's tasting the dish. It's having the flavors burst Inside of your mouth. And you know. From what you enjoy. That something is real. And we need this. You know when we walk through the conditions that require endurance. Our hearts just race to the conclusion. That God doesn't really care about us. It just comes so easily. And, and partly be, because it feels good. We, we, if we're honest, we kind of like self-pity. We like the idea that everybody's out to get us, right? Nobody is for us, not even God. It makes us feel just a little bit unique, just a little bit alone in our principles. And so our broken humanity just goes there instinctually. But God has done something to guard against this. A heart that is filled with love has little room for self-pity. But much room for hope. Now what Paul does here is really interesting. Because he starts to define and to describe what he means by the love of God. He wants to target our thoughts. He, he, he's going after our minds here. He teaches us to reason with us. He says in, in verse 6, for, he's, he's arguing something, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So he's talking about filling our hearts, but he doesn't stop filling our minds. They, they go together. He even throws in some common sense. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. How did he show that? In, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has shown his love. He pours out his love experientially through the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that in a moment. But he's shown his love. He's, he's proven it. He has shown it publicly and historically and objectively in the death of Christ. He will show it to you on the pages of scripture. He shows it doctrinally. He shows it theologically. Here, he'll use this thing called preaching. He'll show it to you, I trust, right now. There are words, there are evidence that we're called to consider, to meditate on. To take to our minds. And Paul isn't going to let us choose between an engaged mind and an impacted 
heart. He wants us to know some life-sustaining, hope-protecting truths, lest we think that we risk being ashamed. But he highlights the uniqueness of God's love. And in verse 8, it's, it's literally the of himself love. God shows the of himself love when he sent Christ. It is a love that's intrinsic to the triune God. It's a prior love. It comes from himself. It's not motivated by anything that you or I can bring to the table. It's not based in how attractive we are. It's not based in even how changed we are by his grace. It's a love that's come to us before there was anything commendable about us. And he says it is an unheard of-ness love. It's unheard of. You've heard some stories about somebody who maybe he was willing in a moment of noble sacrifice to lay down his life for a good person. A lot of good stories like that. I think of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. It opens with those famous lines, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. He goes on to to write, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. Sounds like he's talking about 2021, doesn't he? (laughs) Everything and nothing at the same time. But, but for his side, he gets the eve of the French Revolution. And poverty and oppression sit right alongside of this opulence and extravagance. And the peasants suffer at the hands of the nobility. And the, the, there, there's just this injustice that's taken as a matter of course. As just typical of daily life. In one scene, the Marquis St. Evermont speeds his carriage recklessly through the town. And he ends up running over and killing a small child. And a crowd starts to gather in, in protest. Like, don't you even care? Aren't you giving notice? He just took somebody's life. And he gives this speech about how he could run over any of them and not give two thoughts to it. That's how expendable their lives are to him. Well, eventually the dam of injustice breaks and the reign of terror begins. The revolutionaries have taken up that newly implemented guillotine, Madame Guillotine, as their instrument of vengeance. They start rounding up the rich, putting together these faux trials, sentencing people to death left and right. And there's an aristocrat named Charles Darnay who was sympathetic to the the cause of the poor and he had renounced his own nobility but he's just swept up in the in the whole play of events here and he is captured and he is sentenced to death and he sits in a cell awaiting execution but there's a lawyer named Sidney Carton who resembles Darnay. And he, in, in the past, he, ha, he had uh, had a, a relationship with, uh, with uh, Darnay's wife. And, 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 and he knows that he looks just like him. And so he comes up with this scheme to take his place. To kind of put chloroform on him. Take him out of the prison cell. Go, go in. Dress him up in his clothes. Send him out. And face the guillotine instead of this man. And right before he dies, he says, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It's one of the best stories ever written. 
And Paul says, it's true. That's a good story. But this is something you've never heard of. All right, this is a story that's unlike any other. This isn't just somebody dying for a good man, for some likable character. This, this is someone giving his life for the Marquis St. Evermont. This is God showing his love for us when we had driven our carriage right over his son and didn't give two thoughts about it in the process. This is Christ dying for his enemies. And he loved us. Why? It's his own love. He holds the claim on it. And it happened at the right time. At what time? At the time of our helplessness. At the time of our misery. At that time when we were ungodly. While... We were weak and pathetic and sickly. But maybe that's not morally accurate enough. And so he adds that picture of weakness simultaneous to our being idolatrous, to our being wicked, to our being hostile to God. Not when we were halfway recovered from these things. When we rose up from the bed of an adulterous lover. That's when Hosea pursued us. When we were still stumbling, drunk, and sleeping in our vomit, and dishonest, and would as soon steal from you as you would help us, that's when he came. When we were plotting hateful schemes to overthrow his rule, when we were sitting in our darkness and just content to shut out the light Forever, when we were gasping our last dying breath and glad that he had never gotten a hold of us. That's when Christmas came. That's when the father ran down the road to meet us. That's when the darling of heaven gave himself over to our tortures. So here's the argument here. Do you think... God doesn't love you now? Because you blew it last year? Really? Verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now. Much more now that we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life. His life will save you every day of your life. He doesn't want us to escape the logic here. Again, Paul's arguing with us here. He presents an argument that that reasons from a a, a harder to prove fact to something that ought to be obvious. If you accept this, if you can accept that God loved you then, then what's the struggle in believing he loves you now? Just because he started to change you and yet not fully. If he loved us then, If he moved toward us with redemptive action and sacrificial love when we had nothing to offer, do you think he will do less toward us now? 
Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, was published last year. It felt like it came right on time. He writes, Christ died to confound our intuitive assumptions that divine love has an expiration date. And, and that's the love. That's the unexpiring, the boundless love that God has taken and poured into our hearts. Let that settle you. Let that stabilize you. I hope no longer seems so risky when we have that kind of acceptance. What if we really believed that the God who is sovereign, who controls every single molecule of all existence, who reroutes the pathway of kings and nations, is the God who loves you, who loves you. Now, where does this come from? How do we know this? You keep reading the sentence. Through the Holy Spirit given to us. Why the Spirit? The love of God is so vast and so unending and so infinite that it takes a divine person to contain it. I notice Paul Paul puts this in in Titus 3. He uses very similar language, just a little bit different. Verse 5, he says, By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom, personal pronoun, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it's the pouring of a person. God poured his unending love on our hearts when he richly poured his very spirit on us. This spirit who reaches to the full extent of everything that God is. As 1 Corinthians 2 says, he searches all the way to the depths of the bottomless ocean of God's love. The spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Think about this with me. The spirit knows God through and through. There's nothing that is foreign to the spirit of God about the nature and the character of God. And in all of his searching, in all of his knowing the infinity that God is, he has never discovered one single impulse in the father to have anything but affection for you in Christ. He has never come across this stray feeling of annoyance, this lingering question or this little bit of reluctance as to whether or not you might be really his and whether or not he will continue with you down this road. It's not there. And he knows it all. And that's the spirit that comes inside of you. Poured into you until you burst. And that spirit knows perfectly, teaches us to know. In fact, in giving us his spirit, God gave us his very love. The spirit in scripture is described as the love of God personified. Look at this glimpse into the inner Trinitarian life here. We're just taken to this Everest of glory in John 3 verse 34 
For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He gives the spirit. The father loves the son. Now you see this connection? The measureless spirit is given from the father to the son because the father loves the son. It's as if God's love for the son is so infinite and so perfect that his love is a person. It's a divine person. It's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And he gives us that same spirit. The spirit activates our experience. Of the love of God. He makes it real to us. In time. In the moment of need. In the moments of disbelief. In the moments of struggle. He shows us. That he loves us. Listen. If at any moment this morning. Any words that I've used. Anything else that we've sung. Have gripped you. Have given you hope. That is the Holy Spirit inside of you doing this verse right now. That's what he does. Your very sensing that you are under the care of God is the proof of it. Because it's the Holy Spirit who convinces. And so if you feel just even a little bit more convinced right now than you did yesterday, right? then you can know he loves you. Because he gives the spirit to you. He's given it to you. And right now he's doing his work in you. I long for us to have more of the sustaining sweetness of this. We need it. It's not just the theoretical assent to the fact that sure God is good. And yeah, I know he loves me. Yeah, there's, a, there's a difference. I've got three kids and I trust even in my weaknesses as a dad, I love them, right? I love them all the time. I love them when I'm sleeping. I love them when they're sleeping. But there are those moments where I just have to grab them and I have to pull them close and I have to wrestle them and I kiss them and I tell them I love them and they struggle and try to go on their way to do whatever they want to do instead. But I've got them. And I trust they know then I love them. That's what the spirit does. There are moments where he just pulls you into the heart of God. Through the love that's been poured in your heart. And Paul uses, there's a bit of a nuance in this, in this passage here. Because he uses these two different tense forms here. He talks about the spirit's been given. And he uses this verbal tense that describes an action kind of from the outside. It's completed. It's done. He gave you the spirit, but he says that because God's love has been, has been poured and the tense form he uses there, it kind of, it opens it up from the inside. It unfolds it. It shows you this, this unfolding process that we're in. And so he gave you the spirit when you came to know Christ, when you were converted, he lived inside of you. And then he, he's poured his love in you. And that describes something you don't just get once, but hundreds and thousands of times as he's pleased to do. Look at Dane Ortland. He says this, the spirit loves nothing more than to awaken and calm and soothe us with the heart knowledge 
of what we have been graced with. The Spirit's role, in summary, is to turn our postcard apprehensions of Christ's great heart of longing and affection for us into an experience of sitting on the beach, in a lawn chair, drink in hand, enjoying the actual experience. Maybe you had to cancel your vacation last year and all you get is like the digital version of the postcard of that experience, the stock photo of what somebody else having a good time looks like. There's a difference between seeing the photo and sitting in the chair and feeling the breeze and being refreshed. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit does this decisively once and for all at regeneration But he does it 10,000 times thereafter as we continue through sin, folly, or boredom to drift from the felt experience of his heart. All right, those are some helpful categories of interference to consider. Sin, folly, and boredom that get in the way of this impact. How'd you give yourself... To those things last year. Patterns of sin. Unrepentance. Permission to just do things that displease God. That go against what he says. The pattern of life of a believer should pursue. Areas of relational conflict that you're just kind of content to leave where they are. Not walking in obedience to how God calls you to pursue that person, to pursue reconciliation, to seek forgiveness. Where does that come from? What, what does that interrupt? Well, when, when I conclude that this other person doesn't deserve at this point in my life and at this point in time and after this offense, that effort on my part. Well, what am I doing? I'm putting myself at a distance from the, from the God whose love tells me the opposite. Right? And this is about a heart pattern. There are all kinds of principles of wisdom that we're not preaching those messages right now as to how I'll go about these things. But there are disruptors in our experience. Things like foolishness. Wandering. Just taking a year off of wisdom. Stupidity. Just, just being okay with doing the dumb stuff. And we find ourselves further away from the feeling he intends us to have. Boredom. Dulled senses to the things of God. Wasting away with entertainment. And just the next bland thing. Wait, what, what these things prevent us from doing is living in the very experience that was designed to give you hope and to drive you down the road. And the good news is, this is, this is changeable. <laughs> you know, the, the, this is something supernatural that the Holy Spirit does. And so this isn't about life hacking your way through Christianity. This isn't self-generated. But listen, there, there are practices, there are habits that we can pursue that, that put us in contact, that, that, that take an empty cup and say, all right, pour into me, I'm available to you. 
My, my phone, uh, the little port where the charger plugs in had gotten messed with. And, and so no matter what, no matter what charger I would use, it just wouldn't stay connected. Whatever gripping feature was designed to kind of keep it plugged in had become damaged. And so I'd plug my phone in at night and I'd wake up in the morning and it's dead. It had been doing nothing despite the appearance of it looking like it was an outlet in the wall. Um, and so I kind of just stopped even bothering. It's just like, I'm not going to try to rig this thing right now. It's got to be perfectly balanced. You got to hold it in place with staples and duct tape and whatever to get it to charge. Um, and so, I, you know, I just figured I'm not going to have a charged phone for, uh, you know, uh, most of my days. I, I was up on the West Bank, you know, that, that's dangerous territory there. Um, in, in Harvey and, and uh, sorry uh, to, to the Missios clan and anybody else who lives on the West Bank. Um, and, uh, and, and, and spending time there, my phone was dying. And I, I, you know, I was supposed to pick something up that I had purchased and I texted my wife, phone's about to die, might never hear from me again. You know, just deal with it. Um, well, eventually I was able to change out my phone and get one that could actually plug in and, and recharge. But I had developed the habit of not plugging it in because I just figured there's nothing there. And so now my phone is dying and sitting aside in my car. Right there, there's a plug. Just plug it in, idiot. You know, just take care of it. And, and, and we can develop habits and patterns of, hey, there, there is a plug into the power and the affection and the nearness of God. Engage it. You need it. Right? You know what these are. Maybe you're new to Christianity, new to the faith. But for most of us, we, we, we know about habits and patterns like opening up your Bible in the morning and remembering there's a key called promise. Keep it close to your heart. Pull it out. Engage the cell that you have locked yourself in. Pour out your heart to God in prayer. Let yourself be impacted by his interests and his kingdom and his concern and his purposes for the very conditions that you are walking in and feel broken. What, what patterns of life is God leading us to take up this year to direct our hearts toward the experience of his love? Moments where we draw near to his word and the spirit shows up to do what words alone cannot. Ron, you can come back up, man. This is something that can be sought. So Paul prays, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Looking for a way to pray for yourself this year. To pray for your children. To pray for the people that you care about. The people that are content to live at a distance. Oh God. Direct their heart. God, install a GPS system in their heart that takes them home. Comes toward your love. Toward your steadfastness. And may that settle a thousand discouragements and anxieties. I pray for us right now. That he would do that. So if you'd stand with me.
Oh God, we are thankful that you take the time to argue with our unbelief. God, we're thankful that you inspired the Apostle Paul to layer reason after reason and surprise after, after surprise of what you have done for us how you have included us in your purposes and taken us close to your heart. But Lord, we need more than just to hear that, to read about it. Oh Lord, we ask right now, would your spirit make it real? Not just staring at a postcard, Lord, put us there. Refresh us. We pray for a a returning of hope to be experienced, an encounter that comes. We just know, we know in ways that are deeper than how we can explain or reason that you are for us, that you love us, that you are in this and that you are in whatever awaits us. We want that right now. We want that a hundred times from now. We want that in the days to come in this year where our Bible is open or, or the Bible reading plan is opened up and we just trust that the next thing that is there is your heart communicated to us. Lord, Spirit, be in those settings. Give us energy for prayer. Lord, draw us into your affection in a way that impacts and transforms the places of struggle that we're in. Lord, it changes our relationships. It it changes our endurance in circumstances that by now we just want to escape and are resigned that it's okay for us to do so. Lord, whatever it is, you know whatever interference we have brought with us today. Given ourselves permission to sit in last year. Spirit, speak to our needs, our longings, our hope. Let's sing together.